Well, good morning, my beloved family and friends in Christ. It is really good to be back before you this morning, and I'm privileged to be able to serve you again through preaching the Word and pointing to Christ. And to our friends visiting with us, I'm Oliver, and I welcome you to our service this morning. Today we shall continue looking at the book of 1 Samuel, found in the Old Testament. My intent is that we slowly make our way through the first seven chapters of this book in six messages. And we will be focusing on the prophet Samuel, the prophet from God's grace. We have covered four messages so far, and then we have actually taken a break. So today we actually are resuming our studies in 1 Samuel, and by next Sunday, we'll complete this series of messages, and we will see and cover the life of the prophet Samuel. But before we get into today's message, we do need to pray and prepare ourselves. This is because we do need the Holy Spirit to apply God's Word into our lives and to transform our hearts. So let us pray. Living God, help us to hear your Holy Word so that we may truly understand. That understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience. Seeking your honour and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord and for His name's sake. Amen. The Prime Minister of UK, David Cameron, he had been on his way to the Armed Forces celebration one morning in June 2012 when he decided to stop for coffee. And he stunned locals by strolling into the Sandwich Box Plus Cafe. I think pretty much like our local toast box but one of the staff, Sheila Thomas, who was behind the counter, she failed to recognize the PM okay, and told him she was busy serving other customers. And Mr. Cameron's aide popped into the bakery next door. After 10 minutes of waiting, they decided to go next door to the bakery to see if they could be served any quicker. And they actually got the hungry Prime Minister a jam donut and a cup of tea. But when the Prime Minister stopped to enjoy his treat outside the shops, passerbys began to recognize him. And he was soon back in the cafe, chatting to members of the public. And guess what? Miss Thomas was so upset to see that he had picked up his drink from elsewhere that she gave him another scolding. What? Only in the US, right? Uh, UK. UK. What happened was that Miss Thomas did not recognize who David Cameron was. She did not recognize him as the PM, as the Prime Minister of UK. She had a false image of who he is in her mind. And as a result, she treated him like some commoner, you know, like some cranky, impatient customer that she meets every day. They. She did not give him the respect he was due as Prime Minister of UK. You see, the image in our mind of who someone is will determine how we treat him or her. If we have a false or wrong image, we will treat him or her accordingly. For today, in this portion of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 1, we see the stories of the lost ark. 
we see a satire in which true humour and irony, the author of 1 Samuel warns against having a false image of God in our thinking. The author of 1 Samuel warns his listeners not to make false images of God in their approach to and their worship of God. We need to know God rightly. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to 7, verse 1. This is actually a large portion of scripture. I will not read through every verse. So keep your finger there as you follow with me along the story. But before we jump into today's passage of scripture, we do need to know the background and context to understand it rightly. Remember that the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, they cover the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. This story the story occurs just before the transition to a time of kings of Israel. And if you remember the context, it was a dark and difficult period for the people of Israel. The people had repeatedly turned away from God. They rebelled and sinned against God and did what was right in their own eyes. As a result, God judged them for their sins. The enemies surrounding their land continued to oppose and oppress them. And this is where we were introduced to Samuel. They really needed good leaders, but there was no hope in their religious leaders as the house of their high priest Eli continues in their sins and they were worthless in the sight of God. Yet God, yet God does not abandon his people. We saw how God works in the life of Hannah, Samuel's mother, reversing her barrenness and giving her a son in chapter 1. We saw the birth of Samuel and Samuel's dedication to God and to service in the house of God at Shiloh, chapter 2. We saw judgment pronounced on the house of Eli. And we caught glimpses of God's grace in the life of Samuel and for the nation of Israel. And how Samuel grew in the presence of God. Okay? Uh, chapter 2, the latter half of chapter 2. And we saw how God called Samuel in chapter 3. In all of this, God continues to work out His plan to rescue and deliver His people. And then, we come to chapter 4 to 6 of 1 Samuel. We see here this portion is almost like an interlude. We hear no more of the prophet Samuel until chapter 7. Samuel, the focus of chapter 1 to 3, suddenly drops out of sight. And the focus shifts to stories about the ark. God, God, will teach Israel some lessons in these ark stories and will remove the old regime under Eli and sons before the Israelites, the people of God, return to God in repentance under Samuel. God was paving the way for Samuel. And we saw in, the, in just the chapter before this, in first chapter in first Samuel chapter 4, we saw how the Israelites in trying to manipulate God, they were judged for their sins. They were soundly defeated in battle and they lost the ark of God to the Philistines. And this gives us a setting for the rest of the stories of the lost ark. The Philistines had captured the ark of God and brought it into their territory and laid it, laid it before the image of their god Dagon in Dagon's shrine. And they discover that God is not a helpless God. 
we read in 1 Samuel 5, verse 1 to 5 of what happens. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it behind, uh, beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The author writes it plain and simple. He doesn't take a genius to get it. Here, in the thinking of the Philistines, was the God of Israel, represented by the Ark, the defeated God. Now, after all, they defeated the armies of Israel. So at the same time, they think that the God, they have defeated the God of Israel. And this God was brought in before their God, Dagon, the victorious God. And what happens next? Before breakfast time the next morning, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Their God falls prostrate face down and bows before the God of Israel. And what happens next is so humorous even as the author states it matter-of-factly. So, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you picture that? The God of the mighty Philistines needing help to stand him back up. I mean, what kind of God is this? And some of you may be laughing. And this is likely the response of any Israelites hearing this. And it gets much worse for the Philistine and their God, Dagon. The next morning, the same thing happens. The image of their God falls and bows before the God of Israel. And in doing so, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, leaving only the trunk leaving only the body. And as Pastor Dale Ralph Davis puts it, Dagon is simply getting the godness knocked out of him. Indeed, the Philistines themselves will soon admit that the God of Israel has outgodded their God. So the defeated God defeats the victorious God, Dagon, on the latter's home turf. This is funny. What satirical humor you see in this. In, ver- in these five verses, you see the scenes of Dagon's homage as he falls and bows before the God of Israel in verses 1 to 3. You see how helpless he is that he needs his own people to stand him up in verse 3. And we see his utter destruction in verse 4 and 5. And you know, talk about a decisive defeat. You know, I, I like action movies and you, I've, I like battle scenes in war movies when you see the defeated opponents actually surrendering. Okay? And you also see scenes where the opponent armies are so overwhelming, they are so overwhelming defeated, there is no possibility of any comeback. And that is what 
happens here to the Philistine god Dagon? He's devastated. He's devastated. You see, God intends for His people to think and realize that unlike the helpless God of the Philistine, God doesn't need anyone to set Him up again. He can fight the Philistines for Himself. He can bring the ark of God back by Himself. God is not a helpless God. He is supreme. And this run counters to the prevailing paganism of the Asian Near East. Because during that time, the current thinking was that the gods are dependent on man to sustain them. And the God of Israel is counter that. The God of Israel is not a helpless God. He is supreme over Dagon. He is supreme over all. God is utterly independent of His people. He is God is not like Dagon and other idols. A helpless God needing to be helped, needed to be, needing to be protected, needing to be sustained by His worshippers. And we see a similar idea echoed by Paul in Acts 17. And the danger is this, that we contemporary Christians, we may look at the Philistines and think that ah, we are not dim-witted pagans and think that this account has nothing to do with us. However, have we made a false image of God in our thinking? Have we not heard it before? Well-meaning encouragement to serve with the words, God needs you to serve in this or that ministry. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should stop serving God with all our might. But we need to beware of our own arrogance that we cast God in Dagon's image. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We either make idols of things other than God, or in this case, we make an idol of the, our mental image of God. We actually recast God into the image that we want, and not really as He is. The God of the Bible does not need us, but He does want us to delight in Him, as we serve Him. Our God is not a helpless God. He is supreme. Does the image of God in your thinking need correcting? You know, when I was a boy, one of the things I liked to do was to work on puzzles. Yes, I'm one of those introverted kids who hang around on his own. And one of my favorites is this thing called a hidden objects game. You remember those? Okay. What you need to do in this game is to find the items in the list hidden in a picture. So you have a picture, you have a list, and you're supposed to find the items you know, hidden in the picture. And I really enjoyed them as a boy. Because I, you know, I tried very hard to find objects that are hidden in, in plain sight in the picture. And I usually get frustrated. Those of you who play this game usually get frustrated. Because the last one or two on the list, they're incredibly hard to find. And they always appear so well hidden. Well, actually, they are actually there in the picture. It's just that I could not see them. And we see in 1 Samuel 5, 6 to 6, 18, that God is not a hidden God. He is there. 
it's just like but it's just like it's just that sometimes we do not see him. He reveals himself to the Philistines that he is no tame God that they had conquered. We see in verse 6, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. God struck the people of Ashdod and his surrounding areas with tumors, which brought fear, suffering, and death. Some scholars think this is the bubonic plague. But whatever it was, God was acting against the Philistines. And the Ashdodite realized that God's hand was at work against them. We see this in verse 7. And after some consultation, they sent the ark of God to Gath. And the same thing happens. Plague and panic descends upon the people. We see in verse 8 and verse 9. And all of the ark went to Akron. But the people of Akron responded and said, Oh no, you're not going to bring the ark here to kill us. And they called for a big meeting of all the Philistine lords and asked that the ark of God be sent away back to Israel. Verse 11. There was great panic in the city of Akron. There was more than enough evidence that the presence of the ark of God brought disease and death. They recognized that the hand of God was very heavy upon them. Verse 11. And they wanted no part of it. Any Israelite hearing this story will recognize this as a parody of a victory march. You see, in ancient times, when a nation is victorious in a major battle, they would often parade their spoils of war in a march around the city. So as they do so, they say, hey, how great I, I am, how great I am, you know, I defeated the other uh, country, the other nation. And in this case, the parade of the Ark of God was not a symbol of the Philistines' victory, but rather their defeat. And clear evidence that the God of Israel is real and powerful and acting against them. In fact, the Philistines who did not die continued to suffer from tumors and the cry of the city of Akron went up to the heaven. Verse 12. The ark remains in Philistine for seven long months. Can you imagine that? And the consensus among the leaders of the Philistines was clear. They needed to send the ark back to Israel. But how were they going to do that? For the answer, they turned back to their religious leader, their priests and their diviners. Verse 2. And the priests and diviners tell them that it's important for them as they send the ark back to send a guilt offering as well. Verse 3. And we see the instructions in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 4 to 9. And since there are five lords of the Philistines, they were to make gold images, get that, gold images of their tumors and rats, and send five gold tumors and five gold rats back along with the ark. This is humorous. Can you imagine the scene in the Philistine finest gold, gold, gold crafters? You see the five lords coming in and telling the gold crafters, um... Um, could you make five gold rats? And oh yeah, by the way, and you see the lords lifting their tunics to, re- to, to, to display their, gold tu- their tumors. 
Could you also make five gold tumors just like this one? Can you imagine that? But the Philistines were not amused. They dare not be as dense and hard-hearted as Egyptians in verse 6. And when these gold images were ready, they prepared a new cart to be put by two cows that were still raising suckling calves. Cows that had never been under a yoke before. Verse 7. And the ark is supposed to be placed on the cart and the golden rats and tumors placed in a box beside the ark. And the Philistines, we see in verse 8, they were ready for the moment of truth. What we actually see here in these verses is that the religious leaders, what they did was to make the situation so that the Philistines can tell whether it was really God who brought the disaster to them. They would know that God was acting against them. If the cow pulled the cart, ark and all, straight on up the road to Beth Shemesh in Israel. But if it didn't occur, then they will know that the disease and death happened to them by coincidence and has nothing to do with God. We see their reasoning in verse 9. And in order to make it even less likely for this event to occur by coincidence, they yoked two milk cows. I mean, this is just a strange term here. I mean, most of us are city dwellers. I mean, Singapore, we have no cows, right? But when you have two milk cows, what it means is the cows are still raising baby cows, suckling calves. So the maternal instinct of the animals would see them make a U-turn and return to the young. However, the cows went straight in the direction of Bashimesh, along one highway, blowing as they went. They, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. So what do we see here? The ark was headed back to Israel. The Philistines now know unmistakably who had stricken them. God has stooped down to show them in terms that they could understand that He, the God of Israel Himself, had destroyed their God, had destroyed their land, and had destroyed their bodies. God is not a hidden God. He has revealed Himself to them. Now, what are they going to do with this revelation? And my friends, it's not just the Philistines that the Scripture speaks to. It's also to us. It's often easy for us to respond only to the pain of a situation that God brings into our lives and not the truth. When our pain is removed and our fears are elevated, we find comfort again, our heads wiser and our hearts softer to we respond to the truth of God. Perhaps we sinners are not that much different from the Egyptians in that we are dense and foolish. And yet, as Pastor Dale Ralph Davis writes again, yet even in this judgment, there is a ray of hope for us. For limited and restricted as it may be, if God stoops to reveal Himself even to the enemies of Israel, to this non-covenant pagan people, perhaps we may see, we may infer that God may not be totally averse to someday bringing near those of us 
who are far off by the blood of the Messiah. We see this in Ephesians 2.13. God is not a hidden God. He acts and He reveals Himself. Does the image of God in your thinking need correcting? One of the things I do is, uh, sometimes the young people sit in my car and they realize that most times I don't have hymns and Christian songs going on in my car. I have contemporary music, I have country songs. Because I, I think that by observing the culture, by watching movies and listening to the songs, they can give us insight into the current worldview and value of society. And one of the things I've actually noticed is the increasing casualness of God. Words like OMG, I won't use the whole thing, gets written and sung in songs. In fact, if you go and search the Billboard Top 100 right now, the current number one is a catchy song filled with OMGs. And even in churches, this culture sometimes creeps itself into our emphasis. Many Christians talk about intimacy with God and neglect the holiness of God. God is treated more like a BFF rather than an awesome God to be respected and feared. God gets treated casually. But God is not a casual God. We see this in 1 Samuel 6, 13-7-1. At this point, we see the ark returning to Israel. And Israel discovers that God's hand can be heavy against both the pagan Philistines and against God's covenant people especially when they violate the holiness of their God. We see in verses 13 to 15 that the ark is returned and the people of Beth Shemesh rejoice to see it. The Levites present took down the ark and burnt offerings and sacrifices were made to God that day. And if the stories of the lost ark ended there, the Israelite listeners will probably chalk it up as a good story of something that happens to their enemies only but God has yet a lesson for them. We see God striking down 70 men of Beth Shemesh, for they had committed an act of sacrilege. They had casually, with little scan regard, inspected the ark in violation of the prescriptions and cautions of Numbers chapter 4, verse 1 to 20, on how the ark of God should be treated. They had treated God casually, ignoring that their God is a holy God. The men of Bethshemesh responded to the disaster with two questions in verse 20. The first, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This is an entirely proper, entirely proper and right question. They recognize that their God is holy. However, the second question, and now to whom shall he go up away from us? It's a little bit off track if you read it carefully. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, where can we send the ark from here? They wanted to be rid of the ark of God. No self-examination, no searching of hearts. The ark with the power and presence of God in it must be removed. And though we no longer have the Ark of Covenant with us today, but we, even as Christians, can fall into the same way of thinking 
as the people of Beth Shemesh. We can forget that our God is holy or distinct and different, and that our God does not conform to our expectations of an easygoing, casual God. We need to regard God's presence as our supreme joy. Yes, that's right. And our supreme peril. I'm not saying we cannot be intimate with God. Rather, what I mean is that we cannot be overly familiar with Him. Intimacy is being able to call God Father and trembling at the same time. And re-tremble because we know that we have been loved by a holy God. God is not a casual God. Does the image of God in your thinking need correction? Is self-examination due for you? Throughout 1 Samuel 5, 1-7-1, we see the author of 1 Samuel warning his listeners not to make false images of God in the approach to and worship of God. What this means for Christians is that we are to be able, we are to do away with our false images of God and to worship God as God really is. Some of you may know this author, uh, pastor and preacher A. Tapdiu Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What he means is this, is that the image of God that we have in our minds is really important. And he goes on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above his religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than his idea of God. Worship is pure or improper as worshippers, as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this very reason, the most important question before the church is always God Himself. And the most momentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Let me repeat this. I think this is the most, this is a gem that comes from him. The most momentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What is the image of God in his heart? We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christian that composes the church. Always, always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea about God. And what does this mean for us? This means the image we have of God in our minds is of utmost importance. And is this image shaped by what God has revealed in His Word. Does the image of God in your thinking needs correcting? How we think God is will impact our worship. How we think God is will affect the direction of our life. How we think about God will direct our conduct 
and behavior. How we think about God in our deep heart will shape us and determine how we grow. So what is your image of God in your thinking shaped by? Are your thoughts about God shaped by what He has revealed about Himself in His Word? And the second thing is this. The church always witnesses to others, witnesses to others our idea about God. Do we picture God accurately and well? Okay. The church always witnesses to others our idea about God. Do we picture God accurately and well? So it's not just the individual Christians I'm speaking to. We're talking, I'm talking about the church community, we as a corporate body. You see, a healthy, growing church will increasingly picture God. We will represent God's character, His love and holiness to the world. This is why even as a church, as we focus on disciple-making, which includes both evangelism and helping Christians grow, we need to be concerned for the health and maturity of the church community. A healthy church can be a great help and a good testimony to the character and grace of God. On the other hand, a church that is immature, that harbors false ideas and images of God, will hinder his messages, his message to others. The question for us as a church, do we increasingly picture God accurately and well? We do need to take a spiritual health check and to examine ourselves. We see today that God is not helpless, but He is supreme. God is not hidden, but He is revealed. We see that God is not casual, but He is holy. And remember that we as Christians on this side of the cross, that God has really graciously and accurately revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a exact image and imprint of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Jesus Christ shows us the holiness of God in that on the cross, He dies and suffers the judgment and anger of a holy God. He dies for the, uh, for the judgment due to our sins. And in what appears to be God being helpless as His sons get crucified and dies on the cross turns out to be a supreme victory for God. Christ demonstrates the supremacy of God by His work on the cross in what appears to be a helpless failure actually accomplishes what God had planned all along. The forgiveness of sins and the redemption of a people for Himself. We have a supreme, holy God who has revealed Himself. Let us pray. Father God, You are not helpless, but You are supreme. You are not hidden, but You have revealed Yourself. And You are not casual, but You are a holy God. Lord God, we confess this, our sins of harboring false images of You in our thinking. We ask that you forgive us and help correct us. Help us to increasingly know and understand you rightly and accurately. Help us as a church to increasingly picture you well, to image your love and holiness to others. We pray that we might do this so that the world might come to know you and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.